Welcome, adventurers. Sitting around a campfire, Mela and her party are about to hear a tale. A tale of a creature most believed to be a myth. But is it? Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio, in collaboration with Underground Oracle Publishing, presents... Tales from the Dungeon The crackling fire seemed unusually loud. If a stranger had wondered upon them, they might worry that they had stumbled upon some fey trap. All sat unmoving. Colfin with a spoon halfway to his mouth. Rianok staring at her bowl held in her lap. Mela and Colborn still a few paces from the fire. Mela's hand resting on Colborn's shoulder, where he sat propped against a log. Sarkeesian stared into Ketri's eye. Ketri's face frozen in an uncomfortable grimace. Beats passed. Baby bars. Finally, Sarkeesian turned her look away from Ketri and back to her bowl of stew. There was a quiet but collective exhale as their forms relaxed back into motion. Colfin began to eat again. Ketri still looked afraid to move. Rianoct poked gently at her bowl of stew, not eating. Mela turned her gaze to Colborn and raised her eyebrows in a, what was that? Colborn responded with a confused, if not concerned, shrug, his face clearly illustrating that that was not normal. He reached up and squeezed Mela's hand. She released his shoulder. Colborn drug himself over to the fire circle, adjusting himself into a sitting position. He looked to Sarkeesian. She did not look back at first, content to eat in the awkward silence. When it was clear she would not continue unprompted, Colborn spoke. Come now, my friend. You can't leave us with that. Surely the idea that folk would not believe in the Zorlfus can't be so strange to you. All the party raised their heads, some looking on directly, while Ketri and Rianok cast side-eyed glances at Sarkeesian. It was the dark-skinned warrior's turn to avoid the inquiring eyes. She took two more bites of stew, before finally looking up and back at Colborn, who waited patiently for a reply. She took one more bite and chewed while looking into his eyes, and then something finally let go, her posture softening ever so slightly. My apologies, she said to Colborn first, and then turning to each of them and nodding. I have chosen the path I walk, hand reaching to the sun medallion at her neck. As you know, eyes turning back to Colborn, this path comes with the prejudices and distrust of many, but it comes also with a history, a history and a knowledge that has been passed down generation after generation within the order, to times just after the landing. Mela stood and stepped toward the fire, sitting cross-legged on the ground between Colborn and Rianok after a moment's hesitation. She placed her hands in her lap and waited for Sarkeesian to continue. Sarkeesian looked back into her bowl, as if there was a mystery to be solved at the bottom. Colborn cleared his throat softly, 
She looked up. Zarlfus, he said with wide eyes and an encouraging nod. Sarkeesian set the bowl at her feet, sat up straight, and looked in turn at each of them, then into the fire. The lands of Gloaming Keep are old, much older than the arrival of human, dwarf, and halfling. She began. Mela looked around. This seemed a surprise to no one. Colborne even nodded. The elves claim a history in these lands for more than 3,000 years before the landing. Colborne still nodded along, ever so slightly. But still, they were not the first creatures to occupy these lands. Not the first creation of gods. The first creations were mighty, strong beyond even the most storied heroes of any of the peoples of Gloaming Keep, beings that were bursting with raw creative potential and power. Next to her, under his breath, Colborne muttered, Aeonians. They ruled the prime material planes unchecked. They developed and grew, expanding their knowledge and understanding. Their capacity for creation and control reached new heights, far beyond what they were given by the gods. But that was to their own detriment. Deluded by their own progress and wit, the first beings looked upon the gods and began to question their authority. They reached high and fell far the first beings dared to fight the gods and paid heavily. They were all but destroyed. The survivors were those few who escaped or abstained from the divine mutiny altogether. They retreated into the high and remote places, hiding a while from the gods they had enraged. As they hid, time passed. A small amount in the consideration of such grand beings, but by the measurement of humans, a millennium passed. The elves came and then the gnomes. They were few, and the lands were vast. The first beings cared little for the going-ons of these creatures. Even the long life of an elf was insignificant to their comprehension. But then came an event that could not be ignored. The landing. All the numbers of humans, dwarves, and halflings fleeing the scorched lands, fleeing across the Doramund Sea in search of their gods, which they found here, on the lands we now know as Gloaming Keep. Compared to the elves and gnomes, the people of the landing were a swarm of gnats. And at first, that was all the credence they were given. Numerous, but short-lived, and inferior by every and all measure of the first beings. Small of body, even smaller brains, and in possession of weak magics, these people were considered an annoyance at best. It was not long before the humans, dwarves, and halflings spread throughout the land, moving into the places long ruled by the first beings. This did not sit well. Something had to be done. The first beings studied the peoples of the landing, getting to know their ways, their prejudices, and most importantly, their fears. When they were sure they knew the hearts and minds of the people in the landing, they began to work in the shadows. Through agents and false writings, they began to seed fears and distrust, to threaten safeties and destroy remote villages and settlements, blaming these heinous acts always on one people, a people that dwell in the lands that make up the southern Bharata province, the Dragonborn. 
Sarkeesian paused here a moment to take a drink of water from a skin. What you may not know is the people of the landing had fled the scorched lands due to a vicious war among dragons. They wrote that in the days before they fled their lands, the skies were nearly as black as the scorched ground. Souls light all but blotted out by dragons. Countless dragons that took to the sky to fight out some grudge lost to time. Mela looked around to the faces of her listening friends. It was clear that other than Colborn, all were hearing this for the first time. It was this information that the first beings exploited. This is the wound they agitated, picked at until it festered. They convinced the peoples of the first landing that the dragonborn were no different than the dragons that drove them from their homes, uprooting their lives. And through their plotting and lives, the first beings sparked a war. A war that is a stain on the honor of the people of the landing, on our very ancestors. For through their own fears and intolerance, they allowed themselves to be manipulated. They became that which they feared and hated, decimating the dragonborn and driving them from their lands. The war ended with the remaining dragonborn fleeing south, through the glass sea, where they have not been seen or heard from since. Mighty pleased were the first beings, proud of their clever minds and devious dealings. The war all but eliminated the dragonborn and took a great toll on the people of the first landing. They were little worried about the remnants of these fickle and violent people. They were easily controlled, and for a time, they were. The first beings played dwarves against humans, halflings against dwarves. But if the first beings had one flaw, it was arrogance. They very much enjoyed their plotting and double dealings, even wagering amongst themselves at times at how quickly they could get one village to destroy another, how ridiculous a concept or premise they could get the people of the landing to believe. These people, dumb as beasts, could never pose a threat to the first beings. Mela noticed even Colborn stared intently now. No nodding, no mumbling. Sarkeesian's tale continued. But I spoke of the flaw of arrogance. So caught up in their games of torment and manipulation, so sure of the inferiority of the peoples of the landing, that the first beings wrote off the changes that were taking place. Though small skirmishes were taking place, as a whole, the population of the humanoid races, especially humans, were steadily growing recovering at first, and then surpassing the numbers of when they first arrived. The dwarves moved west and north. Contacts and relations were being made with the gnomes and elves. Larger cities were being built. Connections were made with the gods. Education flourished. And though the growth in the population was seen, the first beings were not worried, for they were certain they could start a new war tricked the peoples once again into destroying themselves. In fact, they relished in the idea. And as the people of the landing began to push further east into what we now call the Shalshali Mountains, a favorite place of the first beings, the beings yielded some of the ground and let civilization take root there. Taking to the highest peaks and deepest caves, the first beings gleefully began to plot and to plan.
to plan for a war even more stupendous and damaging than the first. Sarkeesian fell silent. Mela realized after a few beats that she was holding her breath. To her surprise, it was Ketri who broke the silence. And? The hint of a smile touched Sarkeesian's lips. The first beings got a war. Just not the one they were planning for. Mela's eyes widened. She leaned forward and held her breath. As the people of the landing settled in the foothills and then built up cities, there were reports of giant horn monsters roaming in the mountains. These reports were few at first, but became more common. And then a harrowing tale from a caravan driver taking supplies into the mountains to a newly formed town. They were stopped by a terrifying beast, the horned beast. It was huge, blocking the entire road. It was nine paces long from the end of its long tail to the tip of its nostrils. It stood three paces tall at the back. Six legs had the beast. The four in the back resembled those of a goat with cloven hooves. In the front, two ended in massive taloned claws, like some giant bird of prey. Its head resembled a goat's, but was long and flat like a crocodile. The mouth was filled with rows and rows of razor-sharp teeth. Instead of one set of eyes, it bore two. Eyes that flickered and glowed in a nearly metallic golden yellow. And atop the head, where the base of the skull met the stretched neck, were three twisted and gnarled horns, but not of bone. Instead, they appeared to be made of an amber crystal. Its body was covered in a fine fur, radiant white like freshly fallen snow. A crest of thick black fur and feather ran from its head down its long back and tail. A plume of the same covered its chest, and from under its long jaw a black beard hung like that of a billy goat. The creature glared at them with its four-eyed gaze. The incessant clattering of your cartwheels on the rocky trail have disrupted my peaceful walk, the beast was reported to have said, and that the people's present now owed both apologies and tribute. What tribute, asked those in the caravan? All your possessions should do just fine, replied the beast. The driver unbelieving, said surely it could not mean everything. In response, the beast turned its head to one side of the trail and let out a bellow, a deep, sonorous sound, the breath cold and terrible, the bellow loud as thunder, the roar toppled trees and displaced rock, a swath of destruction some twenty paces down the hill appearing in an instant. In complete terror, all twenty people in the caravan were made to kneel and apologize, heads bowed. They were forced to say that they were small and insignificant, and would never presume to bother this creature again. And then they were sent back the way they came, in naught but their boots and undergarments. Rumors and sightings there had been before, but never had twenty people all at once seen the same thing, told the same story. Word spread like an unwanted virus, reaching far and wide of this terrifying creature. The creature was dubbed Thunderbreath, Zarlfus in the old tongue.
And then something happened the first beings did not expect. For the first beings were the Zarlfus, the people of the first landing, our ancestors, organized. Unwilling to be terrorized again by giant and ancient creatures, unwilling to leave yet another home. And so bands of adventurers gathered. Huge bounties were put out for the capture or death of the Zarlfus. These parties of stalwart souls took to the mountain to hunt down the foul beast. To begin with, the Zarlfus found this highly amusing and made a sport of hunting down these parties, often killing some, leaving the rest to spread word of their power, assuming these inconsequential beings would learn their place. But that was not so. It became clear to the people of the landing there was not one Zarlfus, but many and their only hope for survival was to find and destroy them. They came together to form an army, and at last there was war. Enraged by the impudence of these people, the Zarlfus ravaged towns and cities in the Shalshali Mountains, bringing to bear their full powers. The creatures unleashed frigid gales ravaging anything near them. When faced in battle, the beasts were said to shimmer and bend in improbable ways as they moved, passing through spaces a creature of their size should not be able to. Massively strong, they wrought destruction with claw and teeth. In the three years of the war, not once was it reported that a Zarlfus was taken by surprise, the creature aware at all times. But in those three years of the war, the unimaginable happened. Battle after battle, the Zarlfus, proud first beings, found their own numbers had dwindled beyond repair. And in the end, those few that remained were driven out into the edges and wild places of the world, where humanoids dare not tread. Sarkeesian stopped speaking, drinking again from the skin, and then held out her hands, palm up. There was a silence. It carried on a bit before Malin noticed Colborne's face. It held a tinge of disappointment. But how can you know any of that? It was over eighteen hundred years ago. There are books that say none of those events ever happened, written by well-respected sages. There are books that say if you encounter a Zorophus, it can be warded off by sprinkling a ring of pepper around your feet. There are nigh as many books saying the Zarlfus are the invention of the people of the first landings. Analogies for their struggles. Myths, not fact. Sarkeesian let out a sigh and looked to Colborne. During the war with the Zarlfus, one group of heroes stood out above all others, inspired the armies of humanoids, won great victories after their people had suffered demoralizing defeats acted as the undying flame and spiritual banner for the army. Odegos Astra? Colborne said, still unimpressed. Odegos Astra, guiding star. Yes, they were five. Temvet, whose fists and feet move and struck as lightning. Grendemi, dwarven warrior, whose silver spear is still searched for today. Allah Rude, a scout so cunning his name is only second to Cinder on the lips of rogues. Mirmel Ramket, known as Resilia's first cleric. And lastly, Sarkin, 
the just, a paladin who dedicated their life to Gorion's service. When the war ended, the members of Odogos Astra were not content knowing Subzarlfus remained still, and so they vowed to seek them out. In the darkness of a dreary cave, one such Zarlfus did reside, replaying over and over in its mind the unlikely nature of its demise. In its dark thoughts, it returned time and time again to one thing, these puny beings called heroes by their people, who fanned the spirit of belief and hope against all odds. And in its soul was born a never-ending hatred, a lust for vengeance. The Zarlfus became aware of Odogos Astra and began a deadly game of cat and mouse. It let the heroes believe it was being hunted for a time, and then began a campaign of psychological torment. It would isolate members of the party through trickery and guile, showing itself only then, attacking and injuring the one only to leave them alive for their party to find. When night would fall and the party, weary from travel, would try to make rest, the Zarlfus would stalk the surrounding woods letting out great horn-like bellows, interrupting the party's sleep. So they woke and rested, their morale tried at every turn. The Zarlfus dogged them for over a week. It finally came to an end when the Zarlfus led them deep into a system of caves where it had laid trap after insidious trap. At the lowest level of the deep cave, it mocked them from the shadows bursting forth to rend with claw and teeth, inflicting pain and breaking bone with its terrible bellow, freezing them with squalls of ice that appeared from nowhere. And in that dark place, all but one of Odogost Astra fell. The Zarlfa stood over Sarkin's beaten form and told them much. And then, when it seemed the end should come, the Zarlfa told Sarkin they could leave, but they must choose the body of one of their companions to bear forth from the cave as a memento of their defeat. After a long and painful deliberation, Sarkin bore forth Temvet's body and returned to the lands of their people. That would be the end of most, but not of Sarkin. Sarkin thought of nothing else for all their days. They brought this tale to many calling for the need of constant vigilance, the need for a shield against evil to protect all people. They gathered like-minded peoples, and an order was formed, an order to be this very shield. For Sarkin the Just, you see, is also known as Sarkin of the Everlight, first Grand Guardian of the Order of Soul. And how can I know any of this, you ask? I know it because I have read it read it in Sarkin's own hand. They wrote down all of these events. The Zarlfus had recounted much of their history to Sarkin before letting them leave the cave with a mocking word that few would believe them, that the Zarlfus would rewrite history and that their life would be lived in shameful defeat and without purpose. So when you hear a parent tell a child of the Zarlfus, the hunter of heroes, Tell them of a creature who seeks the bravest champions that the world has to offer to destroy in the name of its own evil pride. Do not laugh. 
Pray. Pray that you never see one. There was silence. The fire had died down to embers. Few words were exchanged before they took to their bedrolls for the night. Mela did not sleep well. Her ears kept straining, straining to hear the sound of horn-like bellows in the distance. I am the killer of heroes and legend of lies. Myth says I am evil for the good they despise. I am a gift of warriors, present from the gods, the great beast of winter and killer of frauds. I cannot be defeated, controlled, or made to abide. I serve none but myself, for I've chosen no sides. So bring your weapons and magic, and then say your goodbyes. There is no winning today. Here your heroes shall die. I just want to take a moment to send a huge shout out to Underground Oracle Publishing for sharing the Zarlfis with me. Who is Underground Oracle Publishing, you might ask? They are uh, amazing content creators who make supplements to be used in conjunction with Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. If there is one word that I could use to describe uh, Underground Oracle Publishing, it would be the word care. They really care about the quality of the supplements that they make. They really and truly care about each and every customer they have. And they care about the tabletop role-playing community at large. So do yourself a huge favor and go ahead, if you haven't yet, and check them out. Uh, I've put all of their links to their products and pages in the post uh, below below this audio file. So if you scroll down and read, you'll see those uh, links there. And if you would like to bring the Zarlfus into your game to torment and terrorize heroes uh, in your party, that would be where to check them out. Again, a huge thank you for listening, and I will be back next week with a brand new tale. You know, one cool thing about uh, making a thing, telling stories, is you get to go out there and meet other people that are making a thing. So the people that I got to work with on this, Jess Pendley and Keith Pendley, are great people and great creators of stuff. So just wanted to point that out. It's so cool to make a thing and meet other makers of things. So uh, I had mentioned some links in the uh, in the outro there. Those links are actually over on my Patreon page if you want to check them out. That episode is actually open to the public, so you can run over there and check out the links to the stuff that Underground Oracle makes. So if you want to head over to my Patreon page, uh, www.patreon.com forward slash Speaking Stone Studio, and check it out. Those uh, There'll be links over to other cool stuff made by other cool people. So that's that. Uh, hope you enjoyed and hope you're interested in what they they did and maybe how I used it a little bit. So thanks for listening. And I'm sure they're going to say thank you for listening as well. And, and if you head over to their website and check out their stuff, I'm saying thanks for them. <laughs> anyway, big thanks. You guys make the world podcasting go round.